Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Oh my goodness. Intensity is not a perfume. Take that home run chain back. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you back on the couches. Brendan, we got a special episode. Yeah. We're going to have Orioles co-hitting coach Matt Borg-Schulte on these couches for an interview later in this episode. But we do have to get to some very important Orioles topics. But more important than all of those, Brendan. <laughs> Is a softball update. Yeah, this That's is right. exactly what you did last time with the Grayson Rodriguez update. You started with, we, we begin today with the most important news of the day, and then it was not the most important news of the day. I'm not leaning as heavily into it as I did last week. Last week, we went through the soundbite, and that took a good five minutes of the podcast. I yeah. don't expect this to take that much time. However... This is no pancakes waffles. This is what the people tune in for. And we have to give them what they want, and that is... Every comment that we get is usually, I love the first two to three minutes of the podcast, which is just banter and not Orioles related. That's what most everybody says. It's funny because that's the exact opposite. Oh! Yeah, thank you, Brendan. Yeah. Softball update. Again, we're still working on uh, making some kind of sound effect for that, but for now, you'll have to settle for that. Brendan, you didn't play in our first game. You were working. I was. I was playing in our first game, but... It's okay, because I feel like had you been there, you would have tested positive for performance-enhancing uh, substances, because uh, you were overcoming huh? you were overcoming some kind of sinus infection. I was. And so you needed to use some steroids I for your I didn't know throat. where you were going with this. You, I, I think you would have, uh, you know, had Maybe. been banned. Do they usually test at Volo Softball? I, I would have tipped them off. Mm. You know, that your own team. I look, I'd like to play by the rules. I would have been the guy that turns in Barry Bonds on his own team. Wow. And I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but I would have tipped uh, tipped them off that you were, you know, on using some would have have helped you. I don't think they were that kind of steroid. Probably not. Yeah. No, they, they almost definitely were not. <laughs> unless they, I have been really misled by a pharmacy. Did, did they help your sinus infection? Not really. They Kinda. didn't help? Maybe a little. Okay. Not a ton. Have you been going to the gym more feeling? I have. Bigger? Thank you for noticing. I have noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we lost our first game. <laughs> well, I wasn't there. Yeah. And neither were my steroids. I went two for three with an RBI single. Thank you for asking. I wasn't there. Uh, yeah. Well, made a made a nice catch in center field. It's it's really no big deal. Um, Brendan. Yeah. Speaking of the outfield. Let's talk about Kyle Smooth Stowers. transition. Thank you very much. Let's talk about uh, the roster moves that the Orioles have made in the last few days. Optioning Kyle Stowers down to AAA Norfolk in order to clear room for their second catcher, James McCann, who actually becomes the third catcher on the roster as the Orioles opt for three catchers. They have Adley Rutschman, Anthony Benboom, and now James McCann. This was a move that uh, came as a surprise to a lot of people. I think a lot of people expected, and this is typically what happens, you drop a catcher, you pick up a catcher. You you, you add a catcher to your 26-man, you send the other guy out. Sending Kyle Stowers out wasn't the natural expected move, but I can see the logic in making the move. Yeah, now, I have never been one to question Michael Elias on this podcast. In Michael Elias, we trust over the last few seasons here. And not that this is such a large move that we would sit here and and wonder what the heck is going on. But I am still a little confused 
as to the specifics of the reasoning behind the move itself. Because as you mentioned, the Orioles now have three catchers on the roster with Adley Rutschman, James McCann, and Anthony Bembu. James McCann just gets one rehab game with the Aberdeen Ironbirds, goes two for four. The Orioles go say, you're good to go. Comes back up to Baltimore. He DH catching pretty much immediately. He DH'd that rehab start as well. He did. didn't even catch. Right. So he gets that one rehab start with Aberdeen. He's back up in Baltimore. And I think, as you said, everybody assumed that Anthony Benboom would get optioned in favor of James McCann. But now they're keeping three catchers, which begs a few questions. One of which is, is Anthony Benboom going to play? And in what role would he play? Because more than likely, you would be having James McCann as your primary catcher on Adley Rutschman off days with either Adley on the bench completely or as your designated hitter. And you probably wouldn't have a scenario where Anthony Bemboom is catching with James McCann as your designated hitter unless you just really wanted a right-handed bat against a lefty. Well, I guess that's maybe a scenario, but probably not a scenario that would play out very often. Well, the Orioles can't option Anthony Bemboom. They have to right. remove him from their 40-man because he is out of options. So he would be exposed to waivers. And it's clear that, you know, Kyle Stowers having options, they felt a whole lot more comfortable in just using one of those options and sending Kyle Stowers down to AAA, whereas Bemboom, you could lose him for good. Now he could clear waivers and return to the organization, but that's a risk that they don't want to take right now. Sure. So my first question was... When is Anthony Bamboom realistically going to get much playing time yeah. on this big league roster? My second question then becomes, is he on this roster because you are still concerned about James McCann's long-term health? And if McCann is not 100%, why did you call him back up from the rehab assignment after just one outing in Aberdeen? I, I think it's entirely possible that the Orioles don't want to mess with James McCann's health at this point. There's still some question marks going forward, and they don't want to lose Anthony Bemboom, who would be their logical third catcher for the rest of the season. And as you mentioned, he's out of options. So it's possible that the Orioles could remove Bemboom from the 40-man. He gets claimed by another team, and if James McCann re-aggravates his injury, all of a sudden the Orioles aren't left with many options as your backup catcher at that point. So that's a possibility as well. But if you think that that's a distinct possibility, then it's curious as to why James McCann didn't just get more time on his rehab assignment. Certainly a righty catcher to compliment Adley is ideal. And right. Bemboom is a lefty, and they wanted that. But again, like you said, Brendan, it doesn't make sense to rush McCann back up here just because you need a righty option. You said off the top, and I agree with you, this is a smaller potatoes move. This isn't, yes. you know, this isn't baby, baby potatoes here, but this is relatively Maybe a nice little salt potato. Sure. Delicious. Yeah. It's not a big deal because this is literally the 26th spot on the 26 man roster. This spot is not going to get a lot of playing time. This person is going to be used in an emergency situation or get an occasional start. Like you said, Ben Boom is not expected to be used that much. Kyle Stowers wasn't used much at all. No, and six I, plate appearances. And I think the understanding part of the uh, of for this move was because they wanted to get Kyle Stowers those at-bats in AAA because it's clear he wasn't getting them in Baltimore. Six plate appearances, four at-bats, did not record a hit, and played in three games. Yep. So he 
needs the playing time. He could use the playing time. It's nice that the Orioles had him as another option in the outfield, but they felt good about already having Mullins, Hayes, Santander, McKenna as their four kind of outfielders with Taron Vavra mixed in as well and Adam Frazier if they absolutely need him to. So I get the move from that perspective of wanting to make sure that Kyle Stowers gets enough playing time to develop. In terms of keeping McCann and Bemboom, the Orioles knew what they signed up for when they acquired McCann via trade in the offseason. And that was a player who, if he stayed healthy, could be one of the better backups in the league. The biggest question was, could he stay healthy? Right. And the Mets saw last year that the downside is there for McCann. They did not get a whole lot of games out of him. He missed a significant portion of the season. You can't count on that kind of guy who's already carrying a fairly large contract for them. Now, the Mets ate a lot of his contract when he was traded to the Orioles. But you can't count on him being healthy for 100% of the season. But if he's on your 26-man roster, you should expect him to be healthy. Right. If he's up in the big leagues, if he's still rehabbing, you know, you can, t- you can slow play him. But the thing is, you can't slow play somebody who's already on the 26-man roster. We saw the Orioles start him on Sunday in the first game that he came back in. And they can, you know, slow play him and give Adley maybe extra games and play Adley a little bit more than they would otherwise. But then that places an extra burden on Adley that didn't need to be there. Right. Why not just take a longer time to get McCann back up to where he needs to be in the minors and not have him rush to the major leagues and then kind of slow play him? I think it's entirely possible that fast playing James McCann would have been seeing him on the opening day 26-man roster. And maybe this is the Orioles slow playing James McCann a little bit where he gets one rehab game where he's able to say, yeah, I'm good to go. And maybe the Orioles just already thought that he was good to go and not having him on the roster for the first week or two is an indication that they were slow playing him a little bit. But I do agree, you need to be confident in James McCann's health for him to be on this 26-man roster. Right. The other thing that this move indicates to me is that, again, Michael Elias has a much better grasp of what other GMs are thinking around the league when guys are going through waivers. This indicates to me that the Orioles were not entirely confident that if they take Anthony Benboom off their 40-man roster, he passes through waivers. Right. Because I think if Baltimore had the assurance that Benboom would remain in the organization, then Kyle Stowers is probably somebody that you'd ideally like to have on the 26-man roster over Anthony Benboom. But I think there must have been at least some small chance that the Orioles thought that Benboom would have been claimed if he was not on the 40-man roster. True, but they're probably going to have to make that move at some point anyway, right? Probably. I mean, it, it doesn't seem realistic to keep three catchers for an extended portion of the season. So I, agree. I would think that they would have to drop him anyway at some point, right? I would be very surprised if the Orioles continue to carry three catchers because I'm surprised that they are doing it right in now. the In the first place. Right. Right. And I, I saw it kind of thrown around that McCann gives you flexibility to, you know, keeping those three catchers gives you flexibility to avoid an emergency situation because if, let's say, Adley Rutschman was DHing a game, James McCann is catching. You have Anthony Bamboom in AAA, and you kept Stowers. So you only have two catchers. Let's say McCann goes down with injury behind the plate. They have to use Adley as their catcher in the middle of the game. And then they 
so they lose their DH in that instance. They then can't DH the pitcher. But that's one scenario. Yeah. A very, hopefully, unlikely Hopefully scenario. remote, yeah. Because Adley Rutschman is going to DH, what, 30, 35 games this season? Right. And that would have to be a scenario where McCann is catching and McCann gets hurt in one of those games. That's I think that's a very specific instance that the Orioles are probably not planning for. And also, but it, it does go back to the question of, you know, if they're safeguarding that, then it makes sense why they kept them boom because let's say the Orioles get through that game with two catchers, then they only have Adley Rutschman. Yeah. Who are they going to call up to replace Anthony Benboom if they just lost him on waivers? Who would be Mark the next Colesbury? guy? Yeah, Mark Colesbury, probably. Probably would be Mark the Colesbury. next guy up. Yeah. I just don't know how long this can last because I just see the Orioles making another move here. And we've seen guys down in AAA, first baseman, lefty first baseman, absolutely tearing the cover off the ball. Josh Lester, who's actually playing more games at third base than he is at first base so far. But he can DH, he can play third, he can play first. He's a lefty to complement Mountcastle. I've seen it thrown around the Orioles might bring him up. But then you're losing Bembu. Right. So are you waiting to see that McCann is fully healthy before you make a move like that? And then if you were going to bring up Josh Lester, it begs the question of why Franchi Cordero was cut. Because Franchi Cordero had an unbelievable spring training. Right. So if the plan was to bring up a left-handed hitting first base outfield kind of hybrid, like we could see with Josh Lester, but as you mentioned, Lester can also play a little bit of third, that opens up a whole other can of worms of why you wouldn't have kept, you know, somebody like Franchi Cordero or Ryan O'Hearn on the roster. Yeah. A bunch of question marks about this move, but we should talk about what the move actually means now that it has happened, which is that Kyle Stowers is not on the big league roster. Yeah. And it opens up a lot of questions about Stowers as well in terms of what he needs to do to either get back up to the major league level or hold a spot there. Because last year in his age 24 season at AAA Norfolk, Kyle Stowers posts an 884 OPS in a whole bunch of games, gets the call up to the bigs, and he was pretty good in the bigs with a 724 OPS in a relatively limited sample size. So I think this begs the question of what does Kyle Stowers need to do to maintain a spot on the 26-man roster? More of what he did last year. Uh, there's Which really, is a hard answer, but yeah, it there, probably is the truth. It's just one of those things that's out of his control. And I think the Orioles, if they had the spot for him, they have been knock on wood relatively healthy to start the year, and especially position player-wise. We've seen some guys go down in the bullpen, but Stowers has always been insurance should one of their regular outfielders go down. Why he hasn't gotten some reps at first base over somebody like Taron Vavra, I've never been entirely sure. I feel like he would be a more natural first baseman than somebody like Taron Vavra. Bigger dude. Power hitter. A, power hitter, plays a corner outfield. Lefty, obviously, like Vavra, but to compliment uh, Mountcastle. But as of right now, Stowers doesn't have that in his bag. They're kind of loaded with first baseman in AAA Norfolk, but maybe Kyle Stowers plays some game at, games at first? Maybe. I mean, he's got to find some way to get onto this roster, right? I mean, the Orioles are clearly pretty content with what they are continuing to see from Ryan McKenna. I know the defense has been a little bit shaky to begin the season. Right. That is not very Ryan McKenna-esque. I think Brandon Hyde and the Orioles are pretty confident that McKenna will get back to the quality defensive play that we are used to seeing out of Ryan McKenna, which is probably a, a higher defensive caliber than Kyle Stowers is right now. 
But you could also make a case that Kyle Stowers brings you more at the plate than Ryan McKenna does. Yeah. So is Stowers able to overtake McKenna at some point? How long does it take for somebody like Colton Kowser to overtake both of those guys down the line? Right. A lot of question marks with the fourth and fifth spots in the Orioles outfield. And the fifth spot is clearly one that the Orioles don't feel like they absolutely need at the big league level. Well, and if this was the plan for Stowers, that he was going to be an emergency guy, and then nobody went down with injuries, he only got six plate appearances in the first week and a half. Yeah. Would Mike Elias, if he had a do-over, rather have kept Franchi Cordero out of spring training, had Kyle Stowers not make the opening day roster, and just avoided this situation in the first place. Well, then Franchi Cordero would have had to take the spot of Anthony Bemboom right now. So would Anthony Bemboom <laughs> still have a roster spot over a theoretical Franchi Cordero? It's the butterfly effect. Hindsight is obviously 2020. Franchi Cordero has played pretty well for the New York Yankees so far, played pretty well at Camden Yards this past weekend. The, uh, maybe. It's but impossible would Franchi Cordero have just been in the same emergency DH corner outfield role as Kyle Stowers and only gotten six plate appearances? Right. I, I wonder if this was the plan for Kyle Stowers, you know, to, yeah. for him to, to make the opening day roster and then only spend a week and a half on that roster before he's sent back down to AAA because he doesn't have enough playing time. Yeah, and I mean, Cordero is only playing in New York because you have injuries to guys like Harrison Bader. Right. And if there was an injury to somebody... You know, like Cedric Mullins, hopefully not, obviously, on the Orioles, then Kyle Stowers is probably on this team. Right, and injuries will happen, and Kyle Stowers will be back up in the big leagues this year. I I think that is almost a 100% likelihood. When he comes back and how he gets that opportunity now become a little bit hairier. But I do think he is going to come back back up, and we'll see if somebody like a Josh Lester or a Lewin Diaz gets the call up to send Anthony Bemboom to waivers. Oh, we will find out. I mean, again, <laughs> this does not affect the regulars. Right. You know, this is just, we're talking about literally the third catcher and the fifth outfielder here, but little stuff like this helps you win on the margins, and this is an Orioles team that can't make mistakes on the margins. Yeah. You know, they have to win every little opportunity that they can, and so the question is, are they you know, set up now in a way that they have maximized the 26-man roster to its fullest potential. Yeah, and and let's not minimize the value of Kyle Stowers here either. No. I mean, this isn't a top-five prospect in the Orioles system, but he's still a 25-year-old with a lot of promise. Yeah. So you hope that the Orioles are able to find a scenario for Kyle Stowers where he's able to get some reps at the big league level, and if not, he's still still able to get consistent playing time at AAA. It felt like he had emerged from the mix of guys in AAA, of position players, and because he had made the opening day roster and because he had already made his big league debut, um, but that he is now thrown back into that mix. And it's different positions, but you can count Jordan Westberg and Joey Ortiz and Connor Norby in that group of guys that are just waiting for an opportunity. They've done pretty much everything they need to do in AAA and in the minors. They just don't have a spot on the 26-man roster right now. All right, Brendan, that's uh, that's our Orioles conversation for yeah. now. We have an interview for you. Matt Borg-Schulte, Orioles co-hitting coach, joined us on these couches, had a great conversation. Here's our conversation with Borgs. 
And we're joined now on the Masson All Access podcast by Matt Borg-Schulte, who is the Orioles' co-hitting coach, along with Ryan Fuller. And Matt, we've had Ryan on these couches before, so it was only fair we get the other co-hitting coach. How do the couches feel? Are they comfortable? Are you sinking into them? Yeah, I mean, it feels pretty good. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you start this job specifically with Ryan Fuller. Before we get into it's kind of your background and things like that, how do you two complement each other as co-hitting coaches with the Orioles? Because oftentimes with teams throughout the league, there's just one hitting coach, but obviously with two of you guys, how are you able to work off of each other and, and build off of each other's strengths? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a huge advantage for, for both of us to have each other, honestly, because we're both kind of going through the same things in terms of trying to figure out what works for each guy and kind of how we can find our place with um, exactly how we can help each guy you know, perform at their best. And we're, we're coming from a similar, uh, similar background in terms of being young in the game and trying to learn exactly you know, the, the best way to attack each guy. And, you know, Ryan brings a very organized and detailed um, approach, and I think I add a little bit to that too, as well as just being able to communicate with the player and find the best way to, to kind of get to him for him to understand some of the complex things that, that we're talking about in a very simple manner. So I think that's a good way that we complement each other. And like I said, it's, it's great to have another guy that we're kind of going through the same thing and, um, you know, uh, having an opportunity to – impact some of these young players at the major league level is, has been very exciting. Ryan was already in this organization when you both were hired. You came from outside the organization, Minnesota. Did it help to have somebody who, he was down in double-A buoy, but somebody who was more familiar with the organization that you were coming in with? No question. No question. I mean, he already had a great rapport with some of the players, so some of that trust that he already had built up with them made it a little bit easier transition for me, um, you know, knowing that, you know, if Ryan believes in me and, and the, you know, some of the players already believe in him, that makes that process a little bit easier. But it's always going to be, you know, something that the, that the players are going to have to do is, is buy into what you're saying and, and believe in what you're teaching. And, you know, they always say that, you know, you don't, you don't know, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I believe that's true. But I also believe, you know, they have to see some improvement or see some results from what you're teaching them to, to truly buy in. And I think we've, uh, I think we've done a good job you know, working towards that. What was that quote you used? That you don't know how much... They don't know... How, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's a great one. So. Have you put that on a t-shirt, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. like I said, though, it's a, it's a good it's a good thing, but at the same time, you do still have to give them something of substance for them to right. you know, continue to, to trust you and, and, and come back to, to try to continue to learn more. Now, before you, before you started coaching professionally, you started at the college ranks. You were coaching at That's Southeast right. Missouri, which was a staff that now has a few big league coaches there. Can you talk about that experience? And it sounds like you guys were a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of your use of analytics and technology and things like that. Can you talk about being a part of that staff a little bit? No question. Yeah, the, the head coach, Steve Beezer, now at uh, University of Missouri, and um, the, the hitting coach that I was with, Dylan Lawson, who's now the New York Yankees hitting coach, uh, just having an opportunity in my kind of first experience of coaching to learn from some, some great minds that, that had a lot of experience in the game. And, um, you know, Dylan continuing to work through this pitch recognition training and learning and, and seeing how important swing decisions are for hitters. And, uh, you know, that, that's something that I feel very, very fortunate to be able to, to have early on in my career, and I think that kind of helped, helped propel my, my intrigue and my interest for the swing and for just the whole offensive approach in general. 
Yeah, as Paul and I have talked with players throughout the organization, even in the minor leagues, the swing decisions have been such a huge thing. That sounds like that's something that you've been working with for a really long time as long as you've been coaching. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we're always going to try to make, you know, tweaks here and there to, to help improve swings. But, but one thing that's always going to be constant is no matter how good or how bad your swing is, if you're not swinging a good pitch, it's going to make it really, really challenging to have success at the plate. And even if, you know, you're not hot and not smacking the ball, if you're making good swing decisions, you can get on base. It's going to continue to help the team. And it's going to help yourself as a player as well. So we do value that a lot. And, uh, you know, we're hoping to continue to make impacts on, on the players in that area. So I was reading in the Baltimore Sun article from a couple of years ago about how you came into this Orioles organization kind of through the analytics route, correct? You, you, was it that you met Sig Dell through some of these circuits and some of these talks about analytics? Yeah, I've, I, I met Sig, and uh, we have a you know a couple friends in common and people that we know, and, um, and and Matt Blood as well. So I think that's kind of how we we started getting uh, getting to know each other a little bit, and that led to kind of where we're at now. Now. One of the techniques that uh, was noted in that Baltimore Sun article uh, was the occlusion training that you got started with. Can you break down a little bit of, of what that is and how you've been able to implement some of that and uh, some of those techniques into your current coaching? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's basically uh, video occlusion training is basically just cutting off the video um, and, and forcing the, the player to make a decision on what pitch type and what location um, you know, the pitch is going to be, and it just kind of anchors your focus more towards the most important part, which is that first 20, 30 feet out of the pitcher's hand when that decision has to be made. And so you kind of pick up a little bit different cues than you would if you're just trying to see the spin of the ball or just trying to track the ball. Um, so I think just honing in that focus for the, for the hitters, whether they know exactly what they see or they don't, as long as they're continuing to, to, to make decisions on that, it's, it's, um, it's a, I think it's an important process. And we've kind of evolved that to, to work through some other cage drills and things like that. And, um, you know, I think it's been, it's been beneficial. What are some of those other cues that you mentioned instead of just the spin coming out of the, the pitcher's hand? What are some of the things that you can notice in those first 20 to 30 feet? Yeah, certainly the release of the ball um, in terms of, you know, how it's coming out of the hand, whether he's got kind of a skinny wrist or a flat wrist, like pronating on the change up or the four seam. I think that's what makes slider such a good pitch is because it looks so much like a fastball split finger as well. Um, so trying to pick up those cues and, and how the hand and the ball is coming out is, is really challenging. And it happens so fast, it's, it's actually unbelievable that guys can see that. Um, but we have a lot of really talented players that have made some great strides. And you know, I think that's, that's an area, like I said, we're going to continue to attack it because we know how important it is, um, as well as improving guys' swings. So was that, that technology wasn't available when you were at a, a player at Western Kentucky, right? No, no, I wish it was. Maybe <laughs> I'd still be playing. <laughs> so you think it, it really has uh, helped, and it might have helped you back in the day? Yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't all that great, so <laughs> <laughs> who knows. But, um, no, I, I do think it's a, it's a part, of the, part of the game that, is a uh, is extremely extremely important and you know making those decisions but also tailoring that more as we get to the major league level and these guys start to develop and understand approaches and and how to kind of carry out in the bat at the major league level based on the pitcher based on what the catcher is calling all the different factors that come into play at this level and obviously the situation in the game plays into all of that so um, you know, that development that some of these young guys are going through is, is very, 
very key and very crucial. And, um, you know, we're starting to see some guys have some success with it. Yeah, and a lot of those advances, as you mentioned, have just happened over the last few seasons. The Orioles, of course, have a very young core at the big league level. What have you seen from a lot of the younger guys on the team specifically who have gone throughout the minor league system with a lot of this technology at their disposal? Do they seem to be pretty comfortable with a lot of the techniques by the time they get to the big leagues? No question. No question. That's a, that's a huge advantage like we were talking about with Ryan. Um, you know, having these guys already go through some of these drills and some of these progressions, they understand the med ball and, you know, we're only swinging at pitches in the heart of the zone, even in batting practice. So um, they've kind of gotten used to and understood that that's, that's how we're training and we're facing challenging pitches. We're facing, you know, mixed BP and all this different stuff that we do. Um, so that's kind of been the norm and that's what they expect and that's what they desire and that's what they want because that's what they feel comfortable with in terms of making sure that they're prepared for the game. We were talking off air about one of the more veteran players now on this roster in Austin Hayes. First game of the series against the A's, he barreled up several baseballs. I think four or five balls hit over the 105 miles an hour, and he only got a hit on one or two of them. When a player is, is barreling up the baseball like that, how hard can it be for them to kind of stay focused and, you know, even if they're not getting the success that they may expect when they barrel the baseball up like that, to still remain focused and to keep their patience in their approach. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a challenge, you know. But at the same time, they should still feel that confidence that, you know, I beat the pitcher I won, I barreled him up. You know, sometimes you can't control where the ball goes, and, and sometimes, you know, there's a wall that's that's pretty far out there. It takes a big shot to get it out, you know. And, and you know, the, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging part of the game. Um, but if you're consistent with your plan of attack, consistent with your approach, and you understand, like, what's valuable is hitting the ball hard at the right angles. And if you continue to do that, we know that we're going to have success. So while at the, in the moment it's frustrating and, and, you know, we try to kind of move past that quickly so we can make sure we're taking that same plan of attack and same approach to the next at bat. We're not trying to do more because, you know, it, it didn't go out or, or I hit it at the wrong, wrong guy. But, um, you know, it was, it was great to see um, – Hayes come through after he hit. I was like, that ball's got to go. Come on. <laughs> yeah. what, what specifically, uh, what kind of work have you done with Austin Hayes uh, over the offseason and coming into this year, and what have you seen him improve on? Yeah, he's, he put in some awesome work uh, in the offseason, working on his bat path, um, trying to stay through the middle of the field, using the other field. Um, you know, he got a little bit pole heavy towards the end of last year, kind of coming off the ball a little bit. And, uh We've seen some of his work already come through. He's hitting the ball harder at better angles and being able to cover more pitches, laying off other pitches. It's, uh, you know, that was a sinker that he hit out, which is a, t a pitch that he struggled with. So to see him make the adjustment, put in some good work, and, it's, and it pay off is, is really, really exciting and rewarding as a coach. Now, another veteran outfielder wanted to ask about was Cedric Mullins. Over the last few years, he's really struggled against left-handed pitching. This year, it came back. It seemed like it was really a point of emphasis for him to get better against lefties and in a small sample size so far. He's really done that. What are you seeing from him against left-handed pitching that's led to this improvement? Yeah, he's simplified his approach for sure. And I think one of the things that was extremely helpful for him talking to him when he came back from the WBC is – he always wants to learn, and he does a great job of picking people's brains. So when he was there, he got to be around some of the best left-handed hitters in the game and got to find out what's their plan of attack. What, how do they go about hitting left-handed hitters or left-handed pitching? And, you know, he was able to kind of 
bring that into his game and got some experience with it in spring training at the very end and then carrying it into the season as uh you know he took Chris Sale deep so it's it's pretty uh it's pretty cool to to see a guy with that kind of talent continue to want to learn and talk to uh, very good players and and make adjustments and get to an uh a spot in his game where you know he can be as good as he can I'm always amazed watching Cedric Mullins his size to be able to barrel up as many baseballs as he does and to be able to drive as many balls over the wall. Of course, hitting 30 homers a couple of years ago. How does somebody who is 5'8 to 5'10, asking as somebody who is 5'8, how do you generate that kind of power in such a smaller frame? He's just a very, very explosive athlete. As you see the way he plays center field, you know, making the catches out there, that it's, uh, it's a special athlete, you know, and, and kind of finding the right way to use his body in his swing, he's done a great job of that. And he's another guy that put in some awesome work in the offseason. I got to go out and see him. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a cool thing to see when you watch guys put the work in in the offseason and it starts to come through. And, you know, he's going to continue to work and continue to make sure that you know, we're in the right spot every day. And, um, it, it, like I said, Cedric's just a, a, an explosive athlete that – um, you know, not many people can can replicate from that from that stature. So I can't replicate that. Is what you're telling me? I, I'm not saying specifically, <laughs> but uh, next well, off season we'll get some work in. Maybe. Yeah, we'll yeah. just go to the cage and figure it out. Exactly. This yeah. is what we need for the softball season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, another guy who was looking to improve his splits against left-handed pitching this year was Adley Rutschman. Obviously, Adley, a switch hitter, was trying to do so from the right side of the plate. Again, pretty small sample size, but it seems like things have gotten better there. What are some differences this year? Yeah, I think, you know, Adley's he's an amazing player. There's no doubt about it. He's a great player. He's a great kid, um, fun to be around, and another guy that just puts in the work to make sure he's exactly where he needs to be. And I think kind of staying through the ball a little bit, a little bit better on, on the right side. Um, I think he's he, he didn't get a ton of right-handed at bats at certain times, and um, you know I, I was never really too worried. I always thought that his right-handed swing was actually maybe even better than his left-handed swing, but um, it, it's it's good to see that you know with some some critics saying that he might not be as good, and then you know we internally knowing that he's a good right-handed hitter, um, it's good to see that that's that's coming through and, and scaling the wall last night was was pretty cool. So we have to ask about the Homer hose. We saw it busted out on Monday night. Did, were you aware that this was coming? And uh, what was your reaction when you first heard about this thing? I had no idea. No, I had no idea. I was wondering, you know, I figured we were going to have something when we had the, the uh, Homer chain uh, last year. I hadn't really seen that broken out. And then all of a sudden I looked down with Mountcastle on a knee down there. <laughs> what is going on over there? But uh, that's pretty funny. You know, it, it's awesome to the guys have fun in the dugout and enjoy themselves, enjoy the game. Um, and uh, I, I had no idea about the Homer hose, but it's, it's a pretty cool thing as long as the guys are, you know, having fun with it. And um, I think uh, ho- hopefully we, we break that thing out yeah. quite a bit during the game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the question has to be, though, you go from the home run chain to the Homer hose. I mean, how can you possibly want up that next year? 
It's a good question. It's a great <laughs> question. Hopefully we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, well, it's awesome to see the Homer hose being broken out as often as it has. Before we let you go, I do want to ask about uh, Brandon Hyde and what he's like as a manager because you have so many skilled uh, coaches on this staff and so many people who have bought into what the front office and what Brandon Hyde has been preaching. But to have somebody at the head of all this who seems to be the perfect fit for this kind of roster brings – the same kind of even keel nature every day. What is it like, um, you know, learning from him and and being in the same clubhouse as uh, somebody who is like that? Yeah, it's outstanding. I mean, he's the reason why we're we're able to do what we do, and he puts us in the best position as coaches and puts the players in the best position to have success. And you know, that's that's all we can ask for. And uh, you know, leading us and and making sure that you know we're we're on pace and we have everything that we need to do our jobs. And that's. Uh, it's it's a it's a privilege, you know, to to be able to have him as a manager, and you know we're really excited about this this season, and hopefully we can continue to uh, continue to progress and keep winning. Absolutely, Matt Borg Schulte, Orioles co-hitting coach. Thanks so much for joining us on the couches, and uh, hope to see many more Homer hoses in the in the future. No question. <laughs> Thanks.